and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 27, Sorting Out the Mess. When we last left off, the young Weimar Republic had just survived its first major challenge from the far right in the aftermath of the initial revolution. The army had stood aside in that time and had not thrown in with the push, although this was, at best, a glass-half-full way of looking at it, as they didn't do anything to put it down either. There was still work to be done to solidify the Republic, if it had any hope of surviving. The first order of business was winding down the Free Corps. As I discussed last week, the Entente was actually helpful in that regard, as they feared them becoming a shadow army and required the various militia groups to disband as part of the Treaty of Versailles. While the Reichswehr reluctantly cooperated with shutting down the groups, officially, they maintained their contacts with the militia leaders as they returned to ostensibly public lives. In practice, the dissolving of the Free Corps simply dispersed the rank and file, where they would recoalesce elsewhere in Germany under slightly different banners. Major rallying points would be some of the Junker estates of Prussia in the east of the country. There, armaments would be hidden out in the rural areas, and anybody looking to lay low, like, say, some of the participants in the Kapusch, could hide out there. And I really could not emphasize enough just how many of these groups started heading for Bavaria. The place was already lousy with other Free Corps units, and in the aftermath of the Kapusch, those units, in conjunction with the local army forces, uh, forced Johannes Hoffmann out of office in Bavaria. Remember from a couple episodes back, Hoffmann was the SPD leader in the region who attempted to put down the, the Bavarian Soviet. And when that didn't work out, he called in the Free Corps units to do it for him. Hoffmann might have been all for smashing up leftists the year earlier, but he was still a member of the SPD, and thus ripe for toppling from the perspective of the far right. The autonomous nature of Bavarian politics turned out to be a curse for him, as there was nobody coming to his rescue. A reoccurring theme for the next few years was that the Bavarian troops that Reichswehr were even less under government control than units elsewhere. Hoffmann was replaced by Gustav Ritter von Kahr, a member of the Bavarian People's Party, which itself was an offshoot of the Zentrum Party. The Bavarians had looked at the Zentrum and decided they weren't conservative enough, so they went their own way. Kind of like how the conservatives in Germany today are divided between the nationwide conservative party and its Bavaria-specific offshoot. Yeah, the Bavarians really don't play nice with others, and there are a lot of reasons why the rest of Germany really hates them. Anyway, Carr would be in charge of Bavaria for the next year and a half, and he welcomed the theoretically demobilized paramilitary groups with open arms. Though at this time immediately following the Kapusch, the story of the Free Corps and the forces of reaction in general becomes temporarily static. They'll spend most of the next few years biding their time and waiting to march on the hated Republic, but mostly in the background. They will end up gravitating towards figureheads like Ludendorff, or more dynamic newcomers like the emerging Munich demagogue Adolf Hitler. More on him in future episodes. The only real piece of business that the Free Corps engaged in during this time as a military force was the continued unrest in Silesia to the east of Germany along the southern border with Poland. Germany had lost a sizable chunk of land at Versailles to Poland, and the treaty had made a provision that a vote would be held locally to determine which of the remaining disputed lands went where. Not wanting to leave the resource-rich region at the mercies of democratic forces, the Free Corps were enlisted to keep a German-friendly peace there. The region was already seen as vulnerable as the previous year's worker strikes had to be put down with troops, 
which had, granted, been pretty much the story everywhere else. The difference in this case was that many of the workers were Poles, and they weren't striking to remake German society, but to leave it entirely. It also meant that the German state recognized that they might lose the vote in areas closer to Poland. Strictly speaking, the Entente was responsible for peacekeeping the region. But if you've listened to the British and French episodes, uh, you'll know they weren't in any position to police the emerging borderlands between Germany and Poland. The new Polish nation had clandestine troops operating in the area to counter the Free Corps, but their support was hampered by the fact that Poland was in the middle of a war with the Bolsheviks to the east. So it kind of turned into a low-level guerrilla war, with neither side committing to a campaign to openly seize the area, only to exert enough control that any potential vote in the future would have its opposition suitably intimidated. It was not a glorious affair for either side, even by the terrible standards seen in the past two years. Moreover, it was inconclusive, with the Poles securing the southern third of Upper Silesia and the Germans the rest by the end of August 1920, so you have a situation where both parties are unsatisfied with the conclusion. If the peacetime transition of the Free Corps into mostly disarmed social clubs might seem anticlimactic, just look over at their opposition to the left and realize that it could get a lot worse. If the far right was sullen at the new Germany they were being forced to acclimate to, they were still in a much better position than the German left. As I've hammered home, the KPD was gutted pretty badly in all the fighting. But more importantly, they were a minority party that only broke from the rest of the left to forge an explicitly Marxist identity only at the end of World War I. They were, simply put, a new party that was able to provide an ideology and no small amount of encouragement to worker struggles, but they did not have the organization, leadership experience, or trust to rally the proletariat of Germany to their cause. That the proletariat was still mixed in how far it wanted to go in reforming society was another hindrance to the KPD. Much more important to most Germans were the SPD, the center-left Social Democrats, and its splinter, the USPD, who straddled a delicate ideological space between its mother party and the communists. Those two SPD groups still represented the mainstream political movement of German workers. The problem for the SPD, though, was that all through the past two years, it steadily sold out worker interests to stabilize the German state. And by sold out, I mean they gave the Free Corps, well, they gave them free reign to smash their own workers' movement. This didn't go over very well in the June 1920 elections. The SPD went from a dominant 11.5 million votes in January 1919, when the first vote for the Reichstag was made, to 6.1 million in 1920. They were still the single biggest party, but the fact that their share of the vote was almost halved was a definite cause of concern. They retained 103 out of 459 seats in the Reichstag, but wound up losing 62. Almost the exact same number of seats picked up by the USPD, who came in second best with 83, which put it very close to its mother party in terms of size. The mood of the country had shifted outside the proletariat as well and the upper and middle classes were thoroughly fed up with all the failings they perceived in the so-called socialist government of the SPD. They had initially backed the SPD when it looked like Germany was going to go communist, but now that the danger had passed, they wasted little time in withdrawing their support. 
I'm almost sorry I have to keep going back to this, but it is just so tragically comic that the SPD threw their own base under the bus in order to please the well-to-do middle and upper classes of Germany, only to be met with hate and scorn as the liberals decided it was actually better to throw in with the conservatives rather than even touch the diet version of socialism. Because that's exactly what happened, and the center and right parties got together and formed a coalition without the left-wing parties. You might be wondering just how the upper classes of society could so electorally outweigh the working classes, especially given all the economic chaos impoverishing many of those same folks from the higher classes. Again, the working class was not uniform, and many didn't buy into the class consciousness angle. They just wanted to get on with their lives while still being patriotic Germans. For many, the internationalism of the left didn't hold the same appeal either, and the prospect of class warfare turned them off as well. Their ambivalence about breaking from the past helped undermine a working-class consensus in favor of supporting anybody who promised to just bring back the good old pre-war days. I discussed in the Intro to Fascism episode that there wasn't a whole lot to offer, ideologically speaking, on the traditional right wing for them. But this was an age of new ideas, and where before the socialists would cater to the disaffected, regardless of where they actually fell on the political spectrum, it was at this point that the populist and fascist parties started rearing their heads. And this right-wing populism was going to be a threat that the left was not prepared to deal with. In the meantime, there was going to be some soul-searching on the part of the USPD. They had achieved a relative electoral triumph and became the second-largest party in the nation. That did lead the party to a crossroads, though, that had to be addressed. The party was probably the closest representation of what the SPD had been before the war years. It was genuinely socialist, with a focus on reforming society around the worker. Their problem was that they had no idea how to carry that out now that the revolution had been crushed. The moment for taking revolutionary action had clearly passed, and they had also backed down from throwing their weight around at every turn during the days of worker uprisings after November 1918. They had expressed interest in pushing for concessions from Ebert and the government, but once the threat of force presented itself, they had backed down every time. So, what to do now? They could throw in with the SPD and join more mainstream politics. They'd certainly be compromising some of their values, and the reason for splitting away in the first place, and also would have to abandon the socializing mission. But, maybe all that was naive optimism, and they just needed to be pragmatists. The other wing of the party thought of joining in with the KPD and forming a unified leftist front against the mainstream. They wound up taking both routes. In the summer of 1920, members of the USPD attended the Second World Congress of the Comintern in Russia. This participation sat uneasily with the right section of the party, who feared becoming a Russian plaything. The left part, though, felt it necessary if they were ever to assemble the needed support to properly carry out a revolution. The debate between the two factions culminated in October 1920, when the party convention voted to approve joining the Comintern. The party split after this decision, with a little over half the members, about 400,000 people, joining the KPD. The other part lingered on for a time, but drifted closer back into association with the SPD, which gradually reabsorbed it. So now, going into 1921, the KPD found itself a party half a million strong altogether, 
which would have been totally unforeseeable just a year ago. However, the same old problems emerged. The defectors from the USPD were those who wanted to take action, the ones who wanted to launch a revolution sooner rather than later. The veteran communists, buoyed by the sudden influx of, and access to, the networks of trade unions and workers' groups, were hard-pressed to disagree. How they were expected to practically do so, nobody really knew. The workers had not been militarized, and there wasn't a leadership capable of organizing or commanding a revolution or one to break out. You'd think that the point of joining up with international communist leadership would be to fix those deficiencies, but, surprise, surprise, they only made things worse. A whole host of actors in Moscow took a keen interest in the newly empowered KPD, and they wanted to use it to push the next great phase of communist revolution. Among them were Lenin's enforcer, Grigory Zinoviev, and the failed Hungarian revolutionary, Belakun both of whom we'll get to know better in future episodes. They, and others, favored an attacking stance, and seized upon a movement of strikes in central Germany to the southwest of Berlin. The police there had started attacking protesting workers, so the KPD stepped in publicly and attempted to organize them into an actual fighting force in mid-March 1921. This didn't go well, and the armed force of workers only amounted to a band of raiders, a few thousand strong in the area. In this case, the army and the Free Corps didn't even need to get involved. The state police were more than sufficient to contain and suppress this sad example of an uprising. It really was embarrassing. There was no coordination between the strikers, nor with the armed units expected to launch the revolution. The rest of the nation was relatively serene as the KPD publicly flamed out. The disaster caused hundreds of thousands to leave the party in total disillusionment, and by the next year, it was down to only 200,000 members. Just six months from unifying with a solid chunk of the USPD, everything had fallen apart. Granted, those who remained were committed and in the movement for the long haul, but that is a slim silver lining to grasp onto. From that point on, the KPD would move much more cautiously, and would focus more intently on legal means of gaining power rather than the methods used in what became known as the so-called March Action. The far right in Germany moved ahead in a little quieter manner in this time. Some of the ex-Free Corps element looked to influence politics without forcing the army to crack down on them. I mentioned last week that General Seat sought to use these groups as auxiliaries in the form of the so-called Black Reichswehr. Basically, Sikht and the army not only knew how active the paramilitaries were, but they were also actively coordinating with them. In these years between the Kapush and the difficulties ahead in 1923, there was a shift in tactics away from paramilitary action and instead going straight into targeted killings. Anybody who was seen as too close to the Republic, and the SPD in particular, suddenly became a target. One of the prominent Free Corps commanders during the Kapush, a man named Hermann Erhardt, formed a group called Organization Consul, a quasi-secret society of reactionary assassins. One of their early high-profile hits was on August 29, 1921, when the leader of the German delegation to the November 1918 armistice, Matthias Erzberger, was murdered while on a hike. A pair of former naval officers unloaded a dozen bullets into him, before fleeing the scene 
and killing themselves to avoid arrest. Erhardt's group would make over 350 political assassinations during this period, culminating on June 24, 1922, when the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Walter Rathenau, was murdered outside his own home. That was an assassination too far, and the public recoiled at the murder of such a prominent official. At this point, government actually managed to unify against the ongoing targeted killings, and Erhard's backers from on high forced him to wind down his operations. This was the point where an uneasy and very fragile time of relative calm set over Germany. The army and conservatives were not enamored with the Republic, but did not feel ready enough to overthrow it. The underground extreme right was all too willing to make a move, but it did not yet have a viable leadership themselves to get all the desperate groups on board. The army and conservatives could offer their leadership, but they wanted any future action to be on their own terms. The left, for their part, was exhausted and divided. But events abroad did not help the nation's stabilization at all. I talked about the June 1920 election and how the SPD's base of support took a steep dive. The more centrist parties, having been able to use the SPD as a shield to do all the dirty work, took the opportunity to break from them and form a coalition with the conservatives. The SPD, still the largest party in the country, did not press to join in the new cabinet and instead just offered the support of its members in the Reichstag. Yes, you heard this all right. The SPD was jettisoned at the first opportunity and responded by supporting the coalition that had just forced it out of power. It was not a strong power move at all. Ebert still remained as president, but while that office could certainly rein in the government, it couldn't totally control its direction. Moving forward, the bourgeois would reassert itself in the national leadership, including its dealings with nations abroad. And now, with the leadership having changed hands back to the pre-war establishment, relations with the rest of Europe entered the forefront. The biggest problem facing Germany, once the internal situation was stabilized and its borders were adjusted, was the issue of reparations. This is going to be an ongoing, touchy subject for the Germans, and while in the French episodes I covered it from their perspective and how it affected their actions, it affected internal German politics much differently. To the average German, reparations were not just a drain on the economy, but also a slap in the face to the sense of national honor. While the Entente had been very careful to specify the money was due for the simple reason of repairing damage to areas occupied by the Germans, they took it as being assigned blame for the war as a whole, as I discussed last week. And if there was one thing that all Germans of various political backgrounds could agree on, it was that nobody wanted to take responsibility for the outcome of the war. The Versailles Treaty had not fixed any amount for the reparations, with the Entente opting to settle that matter afterwards. But given the discussions happening since the treaty was in a draft stage, the sums were going to be enormous. The fair point was made that after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, the Germans had imposed a hefty monetary demand on France, which had turbocharged the German economy for a few years with what was essentially a free pile of money. The French were hoping to turn the tables and do the exact same thing to Germany. The difference in this situation was that the Germans really, really didn't have the money. They had gone all in on World War I and had spent all the money that they really had access to. Plus, the empire had made itself a pariah state in the course of a long war, and it was disconnected from the greater financial world. 
those links were not immediately restored once the fighting had stopped either. The nation had exhausted every monetary option already, and was heavily in debt after funding itself for over four years of grinding warfare through bonds and taxes, what have you. And the German citizenry were right there with the state and its poverty as well. There were two ways to get the money together. You could raise taxes and or take out more loans. The loans would be dicey because of the already existing debts. And it's not like the money loaned out would go to any investments in Germany either. You would be basically handing Germany money to pay France because Germany didn't have the money to pay the bill itself. This meant that Germany owed you money with no new way to pay it back as it wasn't going to any of their investments in which to make more money. Which didn't sound appealing to the prospective American creditors the Germans were desperately looking to. And the idea of new taxes was quashed immediately. The charge against them was led, naturally, by the business class, which, since time immemorial, had resisted higher taxes and was suspicious of the New Republic, as it could fall back under the influence of socialism sometime down the road. One of the more notable industrialists that pushed back against the government on the issue of taxes was one Hugo Stinnis, who'd made a killing during the war economy years. While he was by no means the lone figure in the industrial lobby, he was the de facto face of his associates. He drove the normal arguments that higher taxes would stunt growth, and that the businessmen would simply raise stakes and shutter their activities until more favorable conditions returned. There was also the more general point in that nobody, on any class level, wanted to pay taxes that were going to go to reparations. Millions were dead, the nation was in ruins, and the will just wasn't there to add to all the other constant reminders of their collective national misery. Unfortunately for them, the issue of reparations wasn't going to go away, and the money had to come from somewhere. Faithfully, the government opted for a policy of resource deliveries, especially coal, in addition to deficit spending to try and cover the bills. The problem was that the internal chaos of Germany disrupted those plans. Back in 1919, the government had agreed on sending coal deliveries west, which was the most viable option at the time. Germany sat on prodigious reserves of coal, in stark contrast to their empty coffers. Then came the Kapusch in March 1920. While the Pusch itself didn't damage anything, the general strike and the Ruhr uprising that immediately followed certainly did. Miners marching around with rifles meant that the coal was staying in the ground, and shipment ceased. The French especially especially didn't really care about the excuses of chaos and revolution. And indeed, they were quite happy with the misery of their former tormentors. They just wanted the delivery set back up, or better yet, maybe actual payments. The formal details of reparations were addressed at the SPA conference of July 1920. The meeting was set up to discuss the implementation of the Versailles Treaty as a whole, and so covered more than just reparations. It was at this meeting that they leaned on the Germans to hurry up and disband all the Free Corps, as well as insisting on the 100,000-man army limit, which the Germans had, of course, tried to talk their way out of. The discussions on reparations confirmed that the resource shipments would resume in earnest, and that government bonds would be issued by Germany to fund the payments. How they were going to pay those bonds back was obviously not the Entente's problem. The details on payment amounts, though, continued to be disputed. This was a deliberate tactic on the Germans' part, as they greatly hoped that by dragging out negotiations, the Entente members would agree to a lesser sum out of sheer frustration. 
this wasn't a very smart move. Instead, France and the UK got fed up with all the stonewalling, and in January 1921, during a conference in Paris, they demanded 226 billion gold marks. The distinction of them being gold marks is important, because it would have to be money that was backed by a certain amount of gold. The Germans couldn't play games with printing currency and get out of it. This freaked the Germans out. They had no capacity in which to pay that amount of money, and they refused, and instead turned around and offered a lower sum of 30 billion marks. This was an insultingly low amount, and was just begging for trouble. The Entente decided this was a time to really turn the screws on the Germans. Their armies already occupied the Rhineland. Now they threatened to cross the Rhine River itself and take over several cities, as well as set up customs checkpoints along the river. This would be economically devastating to Germany, but still, the government refused the Entente's demands. French troops crossed the Rhine just as promised, and the government in Berlin went into a crisis. For months, there was deadlock as the sitting chancellor, Constantin Fehrenbach, refused to budge on the reparations payments. This was also happening concurrently with the Silesian plebiscite, which presented the real threat of detaching a very rich industrial area from the country, so they were really feeling backed into a corner by the French and British. On May 10th, seeing no way out of his troubles without an unacceptable loss of face, Chancellor Fehrenbach resigned, paving the way for Joseph Wirth to become Chancellor. Less than a week earlier in a conference in London, the British had managed to secure a compromise alternative that was presented to the Germans. The figure demanded would be 132 billion gold marks, which would be paid in annual installments, consisting of 2 billion in cash, and a quarter of the value of whatever Germany's exports for the year were. Allowances were made that the figure could be paid in kind, just as before as well. The British back deal was accepted by the Germans and French, but only begrudgingly. As we've discussed, the French wanted maximum concessions, and the Germans really didn't want to pay anything at all. In any case, the French would at least get some monetary relief in the immediate future. The Germans, on the other hand, now had a fixed bill that they had to abide to, and they really weren't going to do a good job keeping to it. There weren't any new ways presented by the Berlin government to raise money, and the agreement to raise money via bonds meant the Entente were demanding deficit spending to meet the obligations. It was a recipe for a slow-motion disaster, which we will start covering next week in what will be a two-parter on the Ruhr Crisis. Yes, we covered it a bit from the French perspective, but the German one is so harrowing that it merits two additional episodes. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.